You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. What do we think about that? How does that factor into our numerical growth strategy? Now, no one's going to ask Adoniram Judson to write a book on church growth, you understand? Uh, you spend uh, 12 years and you get 18 con- uh, converts. That's not the type of thing that you would um, have churches across the United States uh, banging at his door trying to ask him, how did you do it, Adoniram Justin? How did you get the 18? Um, it's typically not the way we, um, not who we would, uh, we would, uh, speak to, and that says something I think about the way we think about this subject. And so, uh, typically, the guys that we would ask to explain to us how did you get your church to grow are the are the guys who uh, saw the great increase. And so, maybe uh, Billy Graham would be the kind of person that you would you would go to uh, speak um, to ask him how would you um, you know how did you get so many converts in all of your crusades, but we ought to remember that numbers are, are often deceptive. If you do a simple survey, I mean, Billy Graham was said to preach the gospel to 200 million people. If you do a, a, a survey on all those people that he preached the gospel to and all the people who were reported to come to know the Lord as a result of uh, his evangelistic crusades, you realize very quickly that only six of the six percent of the people who were said to have come forward noticed any change in their doctrine or their lives after a year. Only six percent. And then, if you ask further questions beyond that, what you realize is that not all that purports itself to be health is actually health. And so, we I think we ought to be um, we be careful how we judge these things. Our goal is faithfulness above all else. And, and, and we ought to realize at the very beginning that not all numerical growth or, or what purports itself to be numerical growth pleases God. So there's many different ways that we could uh, seek to add unbelievers to our assembly. But would that be church growth? Would, would that be what God has called us to do? Is that what God wants us to do? And notice as we... Um, Look through the passages that we that I've mentioned already, even at the very beginning of what we're talking about. One of the things that you never see is you never see the Lord added to their number day by day unbelievers, right? What does it say? The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And so, not all numerical growth pleases God. And there are plenty of things that we can do to fake it. There's plenty of things that we can do to um, camouflage our efforts and make it seem like we're a healthy church when we may be ignoring everything we said in the past sermon, right? And so, I mean, you may have a church who, from a spiritual standpoint, is very unhealthy, but who appears to be healthy because they're growing numerically. And so, what's actually happening there? And that's some of the things that we need to think about. Now, as we think about the subject, we ought to remember, as we've studied through the church, we ought to remember that the the assembly 
well, it's for God, but it's primarily an assembly of believers. And so as you think about the way that the Bible speaks about the word church, the word church means an assembly. How is the Christian church different from any other assembly? Well, it's an assembly of believers who gather for a particular purpose. We gather to worship God uh, and then to be equipped for the works of ministry. But as you think about even the name church itself, there's many alternative names that you see for this group. So as you read through the Bible, you'll see that the church is often described as disciples, Christians, uh, individuals who are loved by God, the saints, the sanctified, those who call upon the name of the Lord, uh, the faithful in Christ, the elect, those who, uh, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's probably the most lengthy description of the church. Uh, but the, the point of that is just to say, as you think about the assembly, what we do here today, what we want to have happen is we want to have uh, the Lord adding more and more believers to our assembly. That's what we want to see happening. That's the kind of church uh, growth that we want. And means matter. Okay? So, as you look through those expressions that I've... I mean, as you look through the verses I've already given about the Lord adding uh, to their number day by day those who are being saved, pay attention to the fact that those kind of expressions begin with, and the Lord added. So, God's involved in the process. And God uses means to accomplish His ends. And so, what we want to do is we want to think... um, what what are the things that we can do to be faithful to plant and water and trust God to give the increase? And so means matter. Now, there's plenty of things we can do to, I think, uh, pat ourselves on the back and make ourselves feel better about uh, our assembly. And, uh, you know, when you go to denominational meetings, the first question that anyone asks you about your church is, well, how's your church doing? How healthy is it? Uh, they'll, they'll say, how many people? How many people attend? That'll be the first question they'll ask you. I imagine if you tell anyone that you go to Cherokee Baptist Church and they want to know something about your church, the first thing they'll probably ask you is how many people go there. Because that somehow is the uh, ultimate uh, uh, way that we identify health in a body. Well, uh, means matter. So there's plenty of things we can do to fill our building up. We pay unbelievers to join. Now, you laugh at that. You say that's crazy. But, I mean, I know many churches who do um, giveaways uh, that if you were to come to our church, you're going to get put in a raffle where you'll get to win things or uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Mark Driscoll recently got in trouble for basically hiring a consultant firm to... uh, what they did was they came up with a strategy in order to promote one of his books. And what they did was they uh, hired this consulting firm. And what the consul- consulting firm did is they bought up a bunch of copies of the books from church funds in order to uh, get, have him be listed on the New York Times bestseller list. And so you come up with a strategy, you use a bunch of church funds to buy a bunch of his books, and then he's listed as a New York Times bestselling author. And then, what is the? What, why would they do that? Someone said something. Advertising, Advertising right? So uh, then, if you have a New York Times best-selling author at your church, then that's going to get more people to come and and read the books and everything else. And so, uh, you say it's crazy, but people do these sorts of things. It's not uh, it's not in the realm of absurd. Um, you can build a Starbucks in your church. I'm sure that that'll get plenty of people there. Um, I know, I know churches who do these sorts of things. Uh, if you were to think in, you know, even a, 
you can hire scantily clad women to sing for you. Uh, have a worship service that uh, mirrors a, a rock concert. Uh, those are all just things you can do on the outside. You can, uh, but then you can water down the message, and that's part of what I think the seeker-sensitive church movement is guilty of. You, you just uh, you think to yourself, what do unbelievers want to hear? What are the kind of things that unbelievers want to? Uh, Experience. What are the type of things that unbelievers are attracted to? And then you make your church service. You build the church service around all of those things. And so you per, you primarily gear your church service towards unbelievers. And then you can get a ton of people there. Okay. So means matter, though. That's the point of point of what we're trying to say here. Is we want the Lord to add to their number day by day those who are being saved. Uh, so what we want to have happen is we want to see God adding believers to our number. Now, um, finally, I think what we want to say is numerical growth, which pleases the Lord, will be the result of spiritual growth. And so we want to reproduce something healthy. That was the point of what we learned last week. Uh, What we want to have happen is we want to have numerical growth that is based and uh, founded upon spiritual growth. And we're going to talk about how does the Bible um, speak to the issue of numerical growth. Well... um, in your handout, you have a section on conversion, growth, sheep stealing, and member reshuffling. Now, uh, early on in my Christian life, I was part of a what's come to be called as an emergent church. And one of our strategies to help grow our church was... Uh, Something, uh, something along these lines. What we what we were instructed to do is we were instructed to invite everyone that we saw to our church, and so uh, it didn't matter if they were members of another church. It didn't matter if they were uh, like how faithful members they were uh, to another church. What you want to do is you want to have a bunch of activities, and then you get you invite everyone to attend your activities. It didn't matter if they attend another church, uh, you, but what you want them to get them to do is you want to get them to come to your church and see how um, how wonderful it is at your church, and ultimately get them to leave their church. And so then uh, you want to tell them all the bad things about their church in order so that they can see that your church is a better church, a more faithful church uh, than their church. And so uh, there's a there's a word for that, and it's called sheep stealing. Okay, and so uh, what all I'm trying to say here is that uh, I think many churches experience a lot of growth. Uh, not by the means of church growth that God has given, but through sheep stealing. It doesn't have to be as crass as that. Um, but member reshuffling. So oftentimes when a new church has a new pastor, disgrun- disgruntled members from another church will come to your church. And don't be surprised. I mean, if they if they left the last church with a bunch of problems and they had a bunch of issues with the last place, uh, you know, maybe you're a new exciting church. They're going to come to your church and... Soon they're going to realize that your church has problems too, and then they're going to be a source of frustration for your church. So what what is the kind of growth that we want? I think the kind of growth we want is conversion growth. And we're going to talk about that as we go along here today. We don't just want to uh, sheep steal. We don't just want to reshuffle members from other churches. Primarily what God has called us to is conversion growth, and we're going to be... We're going to be talking about that. So what is our attitude about church growth? I've, maybe I've been a little negative about church growth. Maybe you don't know. Does Tim want our church to grow? Uh, yes, I want our church to grow. Uh, 
But more foundational to that, what should our attitude about church growth be? I think as a church, we ought to have a heart for the lost. Okay? We ought to have a heart for the lost. And so what's... I, I, I think we, we don't want to uh, confuse means with ends here. So we ought to have a heart for the lost. We ought to be desiring and praying for the right kind of church growth. And as you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see a description of the right kind of church growth. And we'll just start at the beginning of Acts here. Acts 1, 1 through 14. Beginning of the book of Acts... Uh, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they had come together waiting for the promise of the Father as they were instructed to. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what you're to be about, the text will say. Here's your purpose. Here's your mission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this early church is being reminded of their tasks that they've already been given. They're, wait, they're to wait in Jerusalem for the receipt of the Holy Spirit. And afterwards, they're going to be Jesus' witnesses. And when he had said these things, verse 9, As they were looking on, he lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount, of, mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So one of the things that we see here today is that they had been given a task. The early church had been given a task to be Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to wait for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, what do you see them doing? You see them gathering together and praying uh, for the right kind of church growth. So you see a, a group of individuals who are desirous and praying for the right kind of church growth and trusting in God to accomplish His purposes. Now, um, what are the means of church growth? We spent a lot of time uh, talking about it, the importance of getting the uh, means right. So what are the means? If we want to be a church who faithfully reproduces uh, Christ in the life of others, what are the means? Well, first, church who proclaims the gospel. Acts 2.41. So at, at Pentecost, they're all gathered in the upper room. Uh, uh, the tongues of fire are poured out upon the disciples. And then there's Jews that are uh, devout Jews that are from all the nations 
coming to Jerusalem for the feast. They hear the sound of this mighty rushing wind. Peter sees an occasion to preach a gospel because now he has an immediate crowd that's gathered about him. And so uh, the, the men who are gathered about him ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter preaches Christ. And those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what are the biblical means of church growth? Church who proclaims the gospel. You have to start there. There's nothing more foundational to church growth than a church who understands and proclaims the gospel. Now, Rob Bell, he built a big church. Um, he, he built a huge church uh, Predominantly, what happened with his church was he, if you don't know who Rob Bell is, Rob Bell is one of the uh, gurus of the emergent church, and he built a huge uh, gathering of people. It's questionable whether it's called a church, but really what it was was it was a bunch of people who were frustrated with their traditional forms of um, Protestant churches. And so he came along, he was saying something new, and he was saying something different, and he managed to get a gathering of believers that was upwards around 10,000 people uh, that came to join his, uh, his um, assembly. We'll, we'll call it that. Uh, but one of the things that Rob Bell never really got right was he never got right the gospel. He assumed the gospel. And so then later on he writes a book, uh, Love Wins, in which there is no such thing as a biblical hell. Ultimately, the love of God will conquer everything. No one will actually go into uh, eternal uh, fiery torment forever and ever. But one of the things that you realize is that he built a great gathering, but it wasn't centered around the gospel. And Pretty soon he got disinterested in it, and he's no longer a pastor anymore. Uh, and so one of the things that you see is that you can, there's, you can do many things to build a, build a gathering of people. But if you're not a church who proclaims the gospel, if you're not a group of people who understand and believe the gospel, don't call what you're doing building a church. You understand? And so there's nothing more central to any biblical church growth plan that, uh, than to have a church who understands the good news, that Jesus Christ came... Uh, Jesus, who was God, came to take on human flesh and dwell among us. He did for us what we could not do. Uh, apart from him, we could do nothing. But he came. He, he lived a life that I couldn't live. Before Jesus, um, before coming to know the Lord, I was dead in my trespasses of sin. I'm totally unable to save myself. I can't do anything to, as a guilty person, to win my innocence. Uh, there's nothing I can do, but... Jesus Christ came and he died for us in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and set free from the power of sin in our life. And so as if we want to be a church who has the right kind of growth, we can't compromise at this level. We have to be a church who faithfully proclaims the gospel. And a second biblical means of church growth, which may surprise you, is a church which practices church discipline. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, now, uh, where do you get that? Well, you get that from Acts 5. Now, I think we've, throughout our study of the church, talked about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in connection with uh, church discipline. So in that instance, you have God pronouncing uh, discipline, so to speak. Um, now, the situation there is you have, in the book of Acts, it's important to understand the situation in the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, you have uh, thousands of people who were gathered on the day of Pentecost. It's a yearly feast in which uh, 
Jewish people were instructed to take a tenth of their assets and come to Jerusalem and eat them before the Lord. So that's a pretty expensive vacation. Uh, but um, it had a spiritual purpose. You're supposed to travel to Jerusalem, eat your offering before the Lord. It was a big celebration. It was a big feast. And so uh, Jesus had just been crucified and rose from the dead. Now, at the day of Pentecost, you have these early disciples who are gathered together in a room. Uh, now, as we've already said, Peter preaches his sermon, and 3,000 people are added to the early church. In one sermon, you have 3,000 people at it, okay? So, um, after that, you have a situation that's somewhat... Um, it, it's the kind of situation I don't think that we experience. Uh, what would we do if we all of a sudden had 3,000 functional immigrants added to our assembly? We would have to think through some way to provide for them, right? And so, immediately after they come to... Uh, Repentance, come to faith and repentance, they realize we can't go back to our former life. These men have the word of life. So we're going to devote ourselves to their teaching, to a close association with them. We're going to devote ourselves to this group of individuals because this is the most important thing that's happening in the world. And so uh, instead of going back to our own lives in order to provide for ourselves, what we're going to do is find out what it means. What are the implications of being a um, Jew who has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, what what are the implications of that? We have to know. We have to find out. And so what you have happened there is you have 3,000 new uh, believers that are now a part of this church who have no means of providing for themselves. And so what did the early Christians do? Well, they began selling houses and lands and property in order to provide for them. Okay? And so uh, because... You know, you have to eat, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the way it goes. You have to have some kind of shelter. And so uh, the early church saw that this was the most important thing that was happening. So they sold their lands, their properties, uh, pitched in, provided for this group of people. Now, uh, in the midst of that, you have Ananias and Sapphira, the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They, it, chapter 5, verse 1 of Acts, it says, A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So... Uh, basically, they conspired together to sell their property and uh, only and hold back some of it and give the rest. Now, notice Peter's response in verse three. Peter said, "Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land?" While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you had contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So the explanation to Ananias there is... Uh, no one told you to sell it, right? <laughs> no one told you to sell it to begin with. There's obviously a need that we could use it, and we're going to make use of it if you do sell it. But no one told you to sell it all. And, and you know, no one told us that if you did sell it, you had to give us all of it. So no one told you either one of those things. So uh, we're thankful that you 
sought to do that, but why is the deception involved? And so because you didn't lie to us, you lied to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God ended up killing him. Now, uh, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she, she said, yes, for so much. But see, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, behold the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Now, it says, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So, um, now we understand this to be a, a, an instance of church discipline in which God executes the uh, final pronouncement. But we, we do so because in, in many ways... Just think about it. I mean, most of the time when someone comes forward with a big donation to give a church, you don't uh, you don't question it, right? Uh, but then you do see, <laughs> well, praise the Lord, thank you, uh, maybe the response. But uh, you see with Peter that Peter is more concerned about what their motive is in giving it and why they're giving it and the fact that they're lying to men and God and God enacts a judgment. Now, read in verse 512, and this will be why... This uh, instance of church discipline is relevant for our purposes. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the apostles by the hand of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. Okay, now notice how as you read through the passage, you see, uh, let's see, in... um, uh, verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11, or that's when Ananias dies. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church, upon all those who heard these things. That's also in, uh, that's after the death of Sapphira. And so, uh, verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so what you see there is you see that a church who takes sin seriously is going to be intimidating for non-believers. And then uh, it's going to result in church growth. Now, one of the things I think the American church has done, and if you allow me to speak in generalities, uh, one of the things I think the American church has done is we've, we've attempted to make the assembly of the saints as uh, non-offensive as we can possibly make it. We, we uh, sought to order our affairs in such a way as that everyone would feel comfortable coming and joining us. And the exact opposite is true here. Okay? The exact opposite is true in this passage. Uh, it's not a bad thing if unbelievers are, are afraid to attend our gatherings. That's not a bad thing. Why would unbelievers want to come and worship a God they don't believe in? Why would unbelievers want to come and be equipped to minister to the needs of believers? Why, why would they want to do that? Why would, why would unbelievers want to come and learn how to obey the Bible? They don't. So why are we so concerned about doing that in our gatherings? Okay? Um, the, the more shallow we keep things, and the more that we make things uh, in our assemblies uh, so comfortable for other people, do you know that the more that we're actually increasing their condemnation? What does the Bible say? Woe to you, uh, Chorism. Woe to you, Capernaum. Uh, if the mighty works that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. right? And so uh, what you see throughout the gospel is the more knowledge people have of the truth without 
forcing them to turn to the truth, the more condemnation that they actually have. And so my only point here is to say that um, as we think about a biblical means of church growth, we want to think about a church who proclaims the gospel and a church who uh, practices church discipline, a church who's organized. And so those are things that naturally come to mind. It should be an intimidating thing to come here. One of the things that John MacArthur would always say about the subject of church discipline, and I really appreciated that he said it, but he said he he wants Grace Community Church to be the kind of church in which it's very difficult to come and to hold on to sin, but then very easy because, I mean, it's going to be very, he wants it to be very difficult because someone's going to call you on it. But then after... You get called to repentance. He wants it to be a church who is one of the most forgiving churches that there are. Because that's what the purpose of church discipline is. It's a loving thing. So we want our church to be one of the most difficult places in the world to come on a regular basis and uh, be a part of our assembly and to hold on to known sin. Then after it's found out and you confess it and repent of it, we want it to be one of the easiest places in the world to receive restoration. Uh, Why? Well... We're all sinful, right? I mean, we all need each other to help us identify areas of sin in our life. But that's the sort of place, brothers and sisters, that's the sort of place where unbelievers aren't going to feel comfortable. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Uh, Now, um, third, a church who cares for its members. Now, I've worded this intentionally ambiguous just because I want to speak to the issue. Uh, one of the things that you'll notice is as you go through all these different uh, strategies for church growth, they're all interconnected. But the example that comes to mind when you think about a church who cares for its members is the example in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, we we have already addressed this at some point, but I'm going to elaborate on it again. Acts 6, 1 through 7, it says, Now in these days the disciples were increasing in number, so they're already increasing in number. Uh, But then a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So remember the situation that's happening. You have have a lot of people there, 3,000, I think 2,000 later. You have probably over 5,000 people at this point, uh, I believe, who... uh, are gathered to hear the apostles' teaching. They're selling lands and property in order to take care of people so that, um, because people don't have jobs at this point. Part of it also is they're wondering if the Lord's going to come back soon. Maybe he'll come back in a few days. And so who knows how, when the Lord's going to come back. But uh, this is sort of a, uh, a, a way of doing life that can't be sustained long term, and that's fine. Uh, but what you see is there's a complaint that's arose, uh, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's a word that means Greek speaking, uh, Greek speaking Jews or Christians now, who arose against the Hebrews because their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food, right? So the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and it said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, that we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so we address this um, passage in the... Uh, lessons on church leadership, but um, 
the uh, the point there is that the apostles had a specific task, which was the ministry of the word and prayer. That was a summary of their ministry. So they didn't want to be hijacked in accomplishing their task. And so uh, what they did was they picked out seven men who weren't scoundrels, who weren't going to steal the bread, and who, who were going to make sure that this bread gets to the uh, to the Gentile women, who would be the more unfamiliar women of the group. You understand? So if there's anyone who's going to be neglected, it's going to be the um, the older Gentile women who perhaps no one knows. So now, um, what they said pleased the whole gathering. Verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, uh, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. And what does the text say? And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what you see there is, and it may be more accurate to say it this way, you see a church which lives out the implications of its mission. In other words, God saves us so that we'll care for each other, right? It lives out the implications of its mission without losing its mission. So the, you don't see caring for members as an end in and of itself, but you see that as an implication of the mission that the church has been given. And so the situation there was the widows were neglected. Uh, the early church leaders saw to it that their members were cared for without having their mission hijacked. You understand? So one of the things that we have to realize is the church is not fundamentally a social club. It's not uh, fundamentally a relief organization. Fundamentally, what these group of individuals have been called to is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, the implications of living out, I mean, if you're a person who's come to believe in the good news that Jesus justifies the wicked, if you're a person who believes in the implications of that, and if you're th- seeking to live out the uh, implications of your faith, which are found in both Testaments. And one of the things that you realize is that if a brother and sister is destitute and has a, uh, has a, a clear need that you can meet, and you say to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them what is needful for their body. In other words, if you just give them some spiritual-sounding uh, platitude, I'll pray for you, brother and sister, that God will provide for you. But then you have the means... Yourself to provide for them, uh, James would say, your faith is dead. How does the love of God abide in you? And so one of the things that we ought to realize is that one of the ways in which you see a church, one of the biblical means of church growth is that you see uh, uh, a group of individuals who care for their members, but don't let that care become the whole of the mission, okay? Uh, so... Uh, what you see there is uh, because the apostles were wise and sought to meet this basic need of their members, uh, but refused to let the, that, the meeting of basic needs hijack their basic min, uh, ministry, the word of God continued to increase because it was continually put out. They were devoted to the ministry of the word and prayer, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there's a never-ending list of good things to do, and as we seek to do them, we uh, ought not to realize, uh, we, we ought not to let the never-ending list of good things to do hijack our basic purpose. And so I think many in the many with the social gospel, um, many who've been influenced by the social gospel have uh, taken the, the uh, taken this passage and turned it on its head, so to speak. And so basically they think they're being faithful to the Great Commission just by going out and meeting uh, 
physical needs. And that's not to say that that isn't something that a Christian would want to do, but don't confuse it with the Great Commission is all I'm saying. So a uh, church who refuses to, uh, to have their mission hijacked but lives out the implications of, it, of its mission at the same time. Four, church who boldly evangelizes. Now, um, the scriptures often speak of church growth using agricultural metaphors. Uh, now, uh, the expression church growth itself is a metaphorical way of describing how faithful Christians uh, become more conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we talked about last week, and so it's a metaphor. When you talk about spiritual growth, you're using an agricultural metaphor to, more, metaphor to describe an individual believer uh, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the subject last week, spiritual growth. But then it's also a metaphorical way of talking about how you spread the gospel. I notice spread the gospel. That's a seed metaphor. Spreading, right? So the way that we speak about sharing the gospel is often in agricultural metaphors. Now, um, last week I used the example of planting potatoes uh, to describe the importance of understanding God's means of church growth. And now it'd be helpful to revisit this analogy as we're thinking about numerical growth. So I just use it about church growth in general, but it's helpful to revisit the analogy. Now, God's called us to numerical growth. I think no one would disagree with that. Uh, Most churches understand that, that God's called us to numerical growth. Uh, Now, we know that in part because God's given us a great commission, right? So God's given us a great commission, and that involves making disciples of all nations. So God's called the church to grow, meaning to multiply. So the kind of things that we see in Acts, we want to see happen at our church, right? That's what we want. Now, um, I think many churches think they are being faithful to the great commission when they invite their unbelieving friends to the assembly or bring their unbelieving children to the the assembly. Okay? Now, uh, think about the metaphor of planting potatoes that I used last week. I don't know anything about planting potatoes. I looked it up on the internet. But, uh, I think what most... or If you don't like the term most, just use many. If you don't like the terms many, just use some. Some, at least some churches out there are doing this. Okay, so um, I think uh, m- many, some, most, however my uh, perception of these things are accurate, uh, think about church growth this way. So they all bring their seed potatoes to the assembly, and then they watch the pastor plant them. I think that's basically the strategy for church growth. So God wants us to grow as many potatoes as possible, so everyone brings them to church. Brings the seed potatoes to church and watches the pastor plant them. And then, uh, let's say it's successful, then I think we all look at that and say, we've done our part. Church growth has been accomplished. Uh, we're a part of a successful church. Everything is right in the world. And so, I mean, uh, analogies often break down, and so there's no perfect analogy. But I think that's basically what uh, many churches are doing, particularly ones that are uh, influenced by the um, the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, ignore last week's message for a second. Just throw that out the door. And uh, let's just think in terms of pure pragmatics. We're not thinking scripturally at that that point. Uh, Is that a good plan? I mean, just pragmatically, take the Bible out of it. 
would that be a good plan? It seems like, I mean, if we want to grow as many potatoes as possible, you'd probably want everyone planting potatoes, right? And so, I mean, just pragmatically speaking, not that that's the, that's obviously not the final word. You, you probably want to get everyone to go home and plant potatoes where they're at. And you probably, because then you could grow potatoes there and we only have a limited number of space here. And so uh, it seems like there's a better plan just pragmatically speaking. But then is it a faithful plan? Is that what God's called us to do? If God's called us to be a part of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, can we think of ourselves as being faithful to that plan by watching someone else make disciples? How does that work? Does that make sense? Can we? But but then, I mean, let's say that you're a part of, of a church where a lot of people are coming to know the Lord. And you don't share the gospel with any of them. But you invited a few people to come. But a lot of people are knowing coming to know the Lord. Honestly, honestly, in your own heart, does it fix the guilt? Does it? I mean, like, do you? Like, I know that we um, at least feel better about things, but I mean, does it honestly fix the guilt when you look in the mirror? Uh, when you look in the mirror, can you do? Do you feel any guilt about every time you hear someone talk about the Great Commission? Is there any guilt that comes? Is is the guilt fixed by just? Being a part of a church that has a lot of people in, in the building, is it, is it fixed or does it stay there? And then what do we do with it? And what are some of the ways that we try to get rid of it? And so uh, I don't think it does. And so uh, w- one of the things we ought to realize is that God does have a church growth plan. And that church growth plan is involves a church who boldly evangelizes. And so you all, one of the things to realize is everyone here has access to people I don't. Everyone here has access to people I don't have. You work in places. You know people. You have neighbors. You have friends. You have family members. People that I don't have an access to, that I've never had a commun- uh, uh, talk with. I mean, normally when someone comes to counseling with me, I'm going to spend a few hours getting to know them. Uh, Diane knows this. She watches me <laughs> ask all these intrusive questions. and then. Uh, but I have to spend a few hours to get to know them. Because I don't know them at all. And then I'm going to ask them what their understanding of the gospel is. And don't be fooled. People don't just convert in one second. I mean, you, most of the time, that's not the way it works. You have to keep on talking to them about their understanding of the gospel and keep on asking them the same questions over and over again. And sometimes they, I mean, they're, they're more than willing to just say a line that you tell them to, to say without any understanding of that line, but you have to keep on working with them and keep on doing that. And so uh, there's only, like, I mean, there's only so many hours in the day, right? I mean, the, the point there is that you guys know people I don't know. You guys know people that Kevin don't know, or Kevin doesn't know. Uh, now, that's just here. I mean, I'm speaking to our church, but, I mean, that's true everywhere. Everyone, uh, this is a bad plan. This is a bad plan is what I'm saying. That, that, that's the point. Uh, the point is that the guilt will never go away until we cultivate uh, something inside of our own heart that loves to talk about Jesus. You know, if we only have some, we only have so much to say. And you, I look, I don't know how to have a whole a whole lot of normal conversations because I just don't care. Uh, you know, I, I think 
put the Bible in your brain, it's going to come out. And I don't know, you know, and so all I'm trying to say is uh, in order for, to have a scriptural church growth plan, that you're going to have a, a church who boldly evangelizes. Now, this is true of leaders. You see that in Acts 9. Um, you see Paul being bold, uh, preach, boldly preaching in the name of the Lord, disputing against the Hellenists, and they're seeking to kill him. Uh, and you notice verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Samaria, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied now. But this is also true of members, church members, everyone. Acts eleven nineteen through 24. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Steve, uh, Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Um, so you see just regular church members being scattered and uh, speaking with their uh, Jewish neighbors, with their Gentile neighbors, the good news, and a great many believed and turned to the Lord and got grafted into a local church. And so we see this is the mission God has given us. This is the mission that God has given us, and there's no way to short-circuit it, and there's no, way, there's no clever way to get around it. That's the mission, okay? God wants us to spread the knowledge of Him to everyone. So there's no... That's what we're about. That's what we're trying to do is the point. And so we want to see church growth. Uh, that's where we start. Uh, now, fifth, um, we see a church which is faithful to its mission despite persecution. And that's that same passage. Uh, now, um, one of the things I think we need to think through the time is coming and now is where we need to develop a theology of persecution and a, a theology of suffering. Uh, it could be that it costs a little more to become a Christian than it does right now. In um, other places in the country even know this. I mean, there's other places you can live beside the South where it costs more to be a, a Christian uh, than it does here. Uh, and so particularly like in the South, I think... Everyone's a Christian. Everyone knows God. Everyone, you know, it's just God and country and everything else. And so, um, whether or not, uh, I mean, you can you can go to a, a member of a, a rock band, uh, a member of a rock band's funeral who dies of a heroin overdose, and uh, and then you, at the funeral, you can have the pastor preach him into heaven, and then uh, basically have uh, the other members of the rock band playing hymns and then everyone thinks that he was a christian and he died and so let me let me just say that's probably not what happened there uh but uh, that's that's the place we live in and i think the time time is coming where we do need to develop a theology of persecution and a, a theology of suffering and most of the time you work these things out before the dark day comes um, bible frequently um, god Tells us, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Don't be surprised. Uh, you know, men will deliver you up uh, to the council. Uh, men's enemies will be those of his own household. And so oftentimes when the Bible tells us to not be surprised about things, those are the very areas where we're tempted to be surprised. You understand? And, and so that's why we need to be warned, don't be surprised, because uh, the Bible... Um, because those are the very areas where we're tempted to be surprised. And so right now, I think as a church, as a, in a, I'm just speaking broadly, I think we can handle very little. I mean, we don't handle things very well, honestly. I mean, we are so easily offended. 
in this culture and in this society. All it takes is for someone someone to say something that you don't like or uh, all it takes is for someone to say something that could possibly be interpreted by someone else to be rude. Okay. In order for you to, uh, it doesn't even have to be a rude thing in itself, but that someone somewhere along the line could consider it possibly rude. Uh, that's all it takes for us to get our feelings hurt and get upset and just want to throw off relationships. That's not going to work when real actual suffering and persecution comes our way is the point. That isn't going to work. And when, when real significant things happen, we're, uh, that that isn't going to work. It, it, it is my point. And so, what you see here is you see a church who are being persecuted because they're Christians, and you would think that you know if if you persecute me and I'm having to flee for my life, that I would quit talking about Jesus. But that's not what they did. Okay. What do they do? They keep on talking about Jesus. And so that's God's church growth plan, that we not love our life unto death. And so I think we're nowhere near that right now. But uh, but so we, we need to get there is, is, is my point. And I think how we get there is we learn to accept wrongdoing. We, we learn to overlook minor offenses. We learn to think the best about other people. We, we learn to intentionally pursue diff, uh, uncomfortable situations. Right. Instead of just when something uncomfortable happens, we run and we avoid and we ignore. We learn to intentionally pursue uncomfortable situations. And those are all things I think we can do. Um, Finally, church which protects sound doctrine. And the example there is the Jerusalem Council decision. So you have all these Gentiles, as we've understood the context of Acts, who are now joining the church. And one of the main things that they're trying to figure out is, well, what is the relationship between uh, these new converts and the Old Testament law? How do we relate to the Old Testament law? And there's many discussions that you can have along um, those ends. And I don't intend to. Um, I, I don't intend to answer. All those things. Uh, But then in uh, the chapter 15 of Acts, what you're going to see is there is a decision made on part of the elders. And let me see if I can find it real quick. Chapter 15, 1, some men came down from Judea and, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, and so there's this false teaching that's being introduced into the church. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, can't be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So... Um, basically, verse 6, the apostles and the elder, elders were gathered together on this matter. There had been much debate. Uh, now, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, that yoke being get circumcised in old age? Um, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, um, 
Verse 12, the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul. They related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They finished speaking. James replied, you think James here is the, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things from old known. Therefore, my judgment... James is deciding there. My judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn from God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. From, for from the ancient generations Moses had, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for his read in every synagogue, uh, Sabbath in every synagogue. And so what you see is you see the, uh, this decision being um, put forth, and there's some implications of that decision, but the result of that is that the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. Now, uh, the church which protects sound doctrines is a church which is going to be multiplied. We, we reproduce what we know, you understand? So uh, we, we many churches are tempted to water down what they teach, to be unclear on what they teach because they don't want to be offensive and so the basic strategy is make it vague, make it unoffensive so you can get as many people to come as possible but the exact opposite is the way that uh, god calls us to be we have to protect sound doctrine protect the church uh, be ready to uh, give a defense to those who disagree and so a church which protects sound doctrine as counterintuitive as that may seem is a church which will ultimately be healthy and a church which will be reproducing and now you can you can see that in many quarters of the church here today it seems to me that many of the movements out there that are trying to be large and try to be inclusive of as many people as possible they're not healthy, but then people who are gathered around the centrality of the gospel, I think you're seeing a lot more growth in those areas, but that's just a historical observation. Uh, but let me be clear, I, I want our church, I want God to use our church to make many disciples. Now, if we do, if we do, if God uses our church to make many disciples, we'll be larger and our, our church roles will have more numbers, right? And, and those are good things. Uh, but I'm not at all interested in faking church growth. And I don't want to be a part of a church which spends all of its energy trying to pretend that something is happening which isn't happening. I believe that God has many people in Woodstock and desires to use us to reach them. And I hope that we can be faithful to, towards that end. And so I pray that Cherokee Baptist Church will be a church which is used to make many, many, many disciples. Um, why don't we close with a word of prayer asking God to help us to be useful towards that end. Lord, we... Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.